As we turn to the Bible, I pray that you'd give us a fresh understanding of the greatness of God and the significance of Christmas. Help me to share, help us to hear by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let me add my welcome to Paul and Isaiah's. Welcome to Church Online. My name is Pete, pastor here at Destiny, and it's a joy for uh, me to take these moments now to share with you from the Bible something about the greatness of God and the, the significance of Christmas. Um, there was a lady, it was Christmas Eve, and she was desperate to get a turkey. She had left it right till the last minute, and she was doing everything she could to try and get a turkey uh, just in the last minute. She was rummaging through all the turkeys. None of them were big enough. So she eventually, in desperation, called over a, a shop assistant and said, excuse me, don't these turkeys get any bigger? And the shop assistant said, uh, no, ma'am, they're dead. <laughs> dead turkeys don't get any bigger, right? But the thing is, the Christmas account is the Christmas account. Every year when we look at it, when you dig into the Bible verses, when you think again afresh about the incredible message of Christmas, it just, it just seems to get bigger and bigger. It seems more magnificent. Over these few weeks of Christmas, I'm going to be sharing around one verse. And today, I'm going to be specifically looking at one word in that one verse. Let me take you to the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. And this is the prophecy of Isaiah 700 years before Jesus. He said this, Behold, the virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Say that with me. God with us. And the word I want to speak to you about today is the word with. He's not God above us or God beyond us. The Bible says he's God with us. Why is with so, so important for your life? Back a number of years ago, there was a report based on research carried out all across the United Kingdom. And the research reveals that over 9 million people living in Britain, uh, that's 14% of the population, would describe themselves as often or always feeling lonely. That's why God with us is so incredibly important. In fact, in response to that research, Theresa May, the then Prime Minister of the UK, uh, Theresa May put in place the first, in the first country in the world, a minister of loneliness to try and deal with the loneliness pandemic we're facing. We're living in a pandemic time, and yet the greater pandemic beyond the pandemic of the COVID uh, virus is the pandemic of loneliness. In fact, many of the measures that have been put in place to restrict our activities so that this virus won't spread have had the positive effect of protecting us physically, but had a negative effect emotionally and uh, uh, relationally of causing us to feel even more isolated. Loneliness is a greater problem than it's ever been, and today that's a big problem. You see, Christmas is all about being with friends, with family, but for many, Christmas is actually the loneliest time of the year. If they felt lonely other times, Christmas is almost like a magnifying glass. It just makes it feel that harder. And for some who have been separated or divorced, this is a hard time. The, the emotion of loneliness is even greater. Many in the UK are going into this Christmas bereaved 
I mean, for me, it's, it's my first Christmas in 45 years being without dad. I'm not with dad this year. And it's really hard. Many of you are single. And this sense of isolation feels even harder at Christmas. And some of you in your immigration situation are struggling with the authorities trying to get your visa, not being with your family, with your familiar setting, and you feel that isolation even more. No one wants to admit to being lonely. No one wants to be that kid in the school canteen that no one's sitting with. But the reality is every one of us fear loneliness and it devastates our humanness. Remember the, the movie Forrest Gump? And there was the, it took you back to his childhood when he had calipers on and he was getting on that school bus. And as he's getting on the school bus, walking along the aisle in the middle of the bus, uh, one kid after the other kind of moved over on the empty seat. said, sorry, this seat's taken. And as he went further along, another kid who had an empty seat beside him moved onto the empty seat. said, sorry, this seat's taken. No one wanted to sit with Forrest until a voice, it was Jenny, his, who became a lifelong friend, said, you can sit with me. And now all of a sudden Forrest was with. But there's an ultimate loneliness. There's a loneliness that no human contact can deal with in our souls. I love having kids. I, I love my kids. They're not really kids anymore. They're, they're adults. But I sometimes, flashing across my mind, I have this realization that one day their smooth skin will become wrinkled, their blonde hair will become gray, and I won't be with them. And there's that aloneness that I can't shelter them from that will come through the passage of time or through death itself. It's an aloneness that often people talk about. In fact, many influential skeptics describe a deep aloneness that they feel. Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, he said, the reason we're so lonely is we're meaning-seeking creatures in a meaningless world, he said. Richard Dawkins, the atheist, he described and said that the, the reason that we're so lonely in this universe and the universe offers us, it says he offers us, it offers us no design, no purpose, no evil, no goods, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So there is this deep isolation that every human being is deeper than human contact. It's deep, and it can't be solved with mere human contact. It's a deep isolation. And it's this loneliness that the Christmas account comes to deal with the heart of. You see, in the beginning, the reason we long for with, the reason we long for company is because we've been created for relationship. Right back in the very first chapter of the biggest, most important book in the world, the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. See, God is creating us in his image, and, and the, the Bible teaches us that when God said that, he refers to himself in the plural. God said, let us. He didn't say, let me create mankind in my image. He said, let us create mankind in our image. And here in the very first chapter of the Bible is a revelation of God that's unpacked as you go through the pages of the entire Bible. And it's a revelation of a God who isn't a lonely, isolated uh, God. He's a God who's eternally existed in community. 
And this God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, and yet one God. Not three gods, one God in three persons. And this revelation of God tells us that God is not alone, that God is within himself, a community. He's eternally existed in relationship. Jesus, referring and speaking to the Father in prayer, he said this, John 17, verse 24, you love me before the creation of the world. In other words, this relationship within the Trinity, within the very being of God, has always been there before anything was created, before anyone was created, before angel was created, before any world was created, before any human being was created for companionship. God had within himself perfect love and relationship. That's why the Bible says in 1 John 4 verse 8, God is love. C.S. Lewis, uh, the great author, thinking about this, made a very profound but important statement. He said this, if God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. In other words, if, if God wasn't Trinitarian, then he would not be love. You see, a single God, without that relational experience of Trinitarianness, would have been a lonely God eternally. He would have had to create before he could have the experience of love and relationship. But that's not the case with the true God. The essence of a God who is one God, one person, not one God in three persons, would be absolute power and absolute morality. And religions that don't understand the Trinity, for example, Islam, their version of God is a God who's dominated with this idea of absolute power, and he definitely isn't presented as a relational God. And yet, the true God as described in the ancient text of the Scripture, from the very first chapter says, God said, let us make mankind in our image. And we've been created in the name of this great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this Trinitarian God, and therefore we are relational within ourselves. Only in Christianity does love precede life. In every other religion, life preceded love. Now, my question is, if God was completely satisfied within himself, completely and absolutely without any needs, he wasn't in need of relationship because he had the perfect relationship. If that was the case for all eternity, then why did he create us? He didn't create us because he was a needy God, a lonely God. But instead, he created, and the only conclusion I can come to and the conclusion that the Bible gives us is he created you and I for relationship with him. And it's that ultimate loneliness, that away from Godness, that Christmas came to answer. You see, God had a mission from the beginning. With was his mission. In the beginning, God created us, but we rejected God. It was called the fall of mankind. But God continued to pursue us down through the generations, down through the generations. And with becomes the very mission of God. In the Old Testament, one Old Testament scholar counted 114 times when God says, I will surely be with you. And see, God's heart was continually with. But Isaiah the prophet, as we just read, takes it to an entirely new level. Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin will, be, will conceive and will give birth to a child and she will call his name Emmanuel, which is God with 
us. God came to be with us in person. He didn't want anyone sitting in the canteen by themselves. The biggest miracle of all turns out to be the smallest. The God's greatness was compacted in a frail human baby. God with us. And because Jesus is Emmanuel, with became the mission statement of Jesus' life. So at the beginning, he was with Mary, a peasant girl, a forgotten girl, an illiterate girl. He was with her. And in his life, he called disciples. And it says in in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, he appointed 12 that they might be with him. And Jesus was with the beggars, and he was with the lepers and the foreigners, and he was with the tax collectors, and he was with the prostitutes, so much so that the religious authorities of the time frowned upon him and declared... Matthew eleven nineteen. he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They meant it as a criticism, but I think Jesus wore it as a badge of honor because with was his mission statement. In fact, it was largely because of the people he associated with that he got into trouble with the authorities and they crucified him and he died on the cross for our sins and then resurrected on the third day. And the very last parting words he gave to his disciples before ascending back to the Father in Matthew 28 says this, surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Why God with us? And I've got two reasons. First of all, he became with us so he could empathize with us. He gets us. Long, long time ago, there was an ancient Persian king who loved the people in his kingdom. And every so often, in order that he could rule them better, he would dress in peasants' clothes and he would go in disguise and live among the common people of his lands. He wanted to understand how it felt to live in his realm. He wanted to understand the challenges and the pressures. He wanted to feel it firsthand, personally, not just know about it academically. He wanted to experience it and be right down in the gutter with the people. On one occasion, he became good friends with a beggar who lived in a cellar. And he often ate with this man. On a repeat visit, he decided on this occasion he would disclose his true identity to this beggar. And he said to him, I am actually your king. Suddenly realizing who he was speaking to. Now, the beggar, the king thought, may have asked him for a favor or some gift. But instead, the beggar, realizing that this was his king, he said this, and I love this. He said, you left your palace and your glory to visit me in this dark and dreary place. You ate the coarse food I ate. You brought gladness to my heart. To others, you have given your rich gifts. To me, you have given yourself. And I I think of that story of this Persian king who just wanted to understand what it was like to be one of his subjects. And I just think that's exactly what God did at Christmas. It says in the book of Hebrews, describing Jesus as the high priest, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize and understand our weakness and our temptations. He knows exactly how it feels to be human in every respect as we are, and yet without committing any sins. Let me introduce you to the God who completely understands your human condition. He completely gets you. He knows what what it's like to be a refugee 
homeless, on the run for his life in those early days of his existence as a human being. He was running for his life as a refugee seeking refuge. He grew up in a small community where everyone knew who he was. They knew he was the illegitimate son of a lady who had a child out of wedlock. They called him a bastard. And that was the bullying Jesus experienced. He understands what it means to be rejected by a community. He suffered bereavement as his own father, Joseph, died at some point in his young adult life. And then Jesus, as the firstborn in that family, had to take on the financial responsibility for Mary and his siblings. He felt the pressure of financial burdens that you face. He gets what you feel. Jesus got tired and hungry. He understood what it felt like to face temptation, the relentless temptation that you face. Jesus understands how that feels. The difference is he never gave in to the temptation, but he wants to give you the power to overcome. Jesus understands what it feels like to be rejected. The the pain of rejection and abandonment you have felt, Jesus Christ completely has felt what you feel. He was rejected by the crowds, the crowd who sometimes were cheering for him and wanting him to be, oh, heal our diseases. And they were all flocking around to hear his teachings and see the miracles. The next moment, that same crowd turns on him and cheers and says, crucify him. The crowd turns on him. He felt the rejection of the crowd. He felt the rejection, and maybe you felt this as well, the rejection of close friends. When he most needed his closest disciples, they abandoned him. And he ultimately felt he, what felt like the rejection of Father God himself as he hung there on the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And many of you have been there when you feel that even God, God, you've forsaken me. Jesus Christ understands what it feels like to be human, to battle with what you're battling with. And he understands that. So not so that he academically, oh, I know what they're going through academically because God's omniscient, he knows everything. But experientially, God gets you. That's remarkable. God, the creator, gets you. And that's really, really helpful. <laughs> someone, someone said, before criticizing someone, you've got to walk a mile in their shoes. And then when you criticize them, you're a mile away and you've got their shoes. <laughs> but seriously, God understands humanity at every level. You see, God's way of reaching the world wasn't in your face. God's way of reaching the world was in your shoes. God walked among us. He gets us. Let me tell you a story about a young man called Rusty who was arrested and convicted of killing four people and he was put on death row. A young man cowered in the corner of a dirty Roach, cockroach-infested death row cell in, South, in a South Carolina prison. His body curled up in a fetal position. He seemed oblivious to the filth and the stench around him. In 1979, Rusty, aged 23, was sentenced to die for the brutal murders of four people. It was here in death row that Bob McAllister, the deputy chief of staff to the South Carolina's governor, became acquainted with Rusty. Bob felt God call him to spend time with those who were on death row. Bob's first look at Rusty revealed a very pitiful sight. Rusty was lying on the floor when he arrived, a pathetic picture of a man who believed that he mattered to no one. The only signs of life in the cell were the 
roaches that scurried over everything, including Rusty himself. He made no effort to move or even brush the insects away, staring blankly at Bob as he began to talk to him, but he did not respond. During visit after visit, Bob tried to reach Rusty, telling him about the love of Jesus and telling him that there was an opportunity, even on death row, to start again and have a new life. He talked and prayed continuously, and finally Rusty began to respond to the stranger who kept invading his cell. Little by little, he opened up until one day he began to weep as Bob was sharing with him. On that day, Rusty Wellborn, a pitiful man with a murder and darkness behind him, and only his own death ahead of him. Rusty, in that cell that day, gave his heart to Jesus Christ, trusted him as his saviour. When Bob returned to Rusty's cell a few days later, he found a new man. His cell was clean, and so was Rusty. There was a renewed energy and a positive outlook in life. McAllister continued to visit him regularly and study the Bible with him and pray together. The two main men became closest friends. And over the next five years, in fact, uh, McAllister said that Rusty was to him like a son. And Rusty had taken to calling McAllister Pop. Bob learns that Rusty's childhood in West Virginia, he learned about a family that was destitute, how Rusty was neglected and abused as a youngster. School was an ordeal, both of him, for him (laughs) and his teachers. Throughout his high school, he wore the same two pairs of trousers and the same two shirts. Many times he was kicked out of home and kicked out of school. Eventually he ran away and spent lots of his time living under bridges and in public toilets. In time, Rusty became extremely bothered by the pain that he caused the people whose, whose lives he'd ruined through the murders. He became concerned for the families and friends of those four victims that he had murdered as a young man. Knowing that God had forgiven him, he desperately wanted to know that he could be forgiven by them as well. Then a hugely significant things happens. A brother of the woman that, one of the women that Rusty had murdered became a Christian. God started speaking to this man. And about two years later, he, he, he wrote to his sister's killer and expressed that he wanted to forgive him. Finally, they met together and they hugged as brothers in Christ. Not long before his scheduled execution, sorry, on the final day, only hours before his execution at 1 a.m. in the morning, Rusty asked McAllister to read to him the Bible. After an hour or so of listening, Rusty sat on the side of his bed and said, you know, the only thing I ever wanted was a home, Pop, and now I've got one. Bob continued his reading, and after a few minutes, Rusty grew still. Thinking that he'd fallen asleep, Bob Bob placed the blanket over him, and he turned to leave, but then he had a strong compulsion to go back, lean over, and kiss Rusty in the forehead. A short time later, Rusty Wellborn was executed for murder. The woman assisting Rusty in his last moments shares the postscript to this story. As he has been prepared for his death, Rusty looked at her and said, What a shame a man's got to wait till his last night alive to be kissed and tucked in for the very first time. Christmas is about God 
coming to be with us, to rescue the worst of us, to be alongside us, to understand, to empathize, to come right down to be with God empathizes with you. The second reason he became with us was so that he could be with us forever. He says in John chapter 3 verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. It's a promise. The reason he became with us is so that he could be with us forever as you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Albert Einstein, the famous physicist, one day was on a train and uh, the, the conductor came through the train carriage that he was in asking people for tickets. And when he came to Albert Einstein, Albert Einstein went into his pocket to pull out his ticket, but there was no ticket there. So he checked his other pocket, couldn't find a ticket. Inside pockets, under his seat, looked in his bag, and you could see he was getting flustered. He couldn't find his ticket. And, and the conductor said, sir, I know who you are. You're Albert Einstein. I know who you are. Everyone in this carriage knows who you are. I trust you. If you got a ticket, I trust that you got a ticket. Don't worry about it. And Albert Einstein looked at him and said, thank you. And then the conductor continued his way along the carriage. As he got towards the end of the carriage, about to go into the next carriage, he looks back and he sees Albert Einstein on his hands and knees, looking under his seat, trying to find his ticket still. And he thinks, he rushes back. He said, Mr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein, listen, I, I know who you are. I trust you. I, I know you've, you've got a ticket. I know who you are. Everyone else knows who you are. I trust you. And Albert Einstein said, a young man, I know you know who I am and I also know who I am. It's just that I have no idea where I'm going. I need to find my ticket. It's got on it where I'm going. And you know, in life, the big question is, where are you going? Where are you going? You don't need to go into an eternity that's ultimately lonely. You don't need to live without God and die without God. You can live with God and be with God in all eternity. The reason Jesus came at Christmas was so that he could die at Easter and rise again so that through his death and resurrection, through trusting in Jesus, you can have eternal life. Every evening, when my, just before my father passed away, late summer, every evening I would open the Bible with dad and we'd read the Bible together. And then we'd pray. And then he would typically go to sleep early evening. He was getting quite tired. And, but we would always have this routine that we'd pray and read the Bible together. And one of the passages that I read to him that really impacted him, so much so that he wanted me to read it over the next few nights as well. And he would have his Bible left open at it because he wanted to reread it and digest it. And this is what it says, and this, and this is the verse that really impacted that. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Isn't that amazing? Jesus Christ, this verse tells us that Jesus Christ, our Savior, he destroyed death, destroyed death, 
and brought life and immortality to us through what he did on the cross. Isn't that amazing? And then that, that conviction at the end, I know whom I have believed and I know that he's able to keep that which I've entrusted to him until that day. And that was dad's living and dying confidence. <laughs> My dear dad passed away in August. You know, after dad's passing, me and my sister had the biggest task on our hands. We had a house, a 45-year-old owned house. It, it's as old as I was. And it was full of possessions and paintings and trinkets and jewelry and stuff. In fact, I opened one drawer and in that drawer was a whole pile of unused vouchers. You know at Christmas when you give someone like a Marks and Spencer's voucher or a Next voucher, Dad had been given them too, he just never used them. <laughs> he had a drawer. Sorry if you gave Dad a present over the years. It was probably unused in that drawer. I opened this drawer, all these unused gift cards. And if you're honest, you've probably got a drawer like that in your house. <laughs> We've been given these gift cards and, and they've expired. But the gift that Dad didn't leave unused was the gift of Christmas. That Jesus is coming into this world to save sinners like my dad, like me, like you. He didn't leave it unopened, he didn't leave it unused. He embraced that gift, he made it his own, he received the gift, like any gift. You say thank you and you take it. And God wants you this Christmas to take the gift that's on offer. God with, he wants to be with you. You never need to be alone again. God with us, let's pray. Father, thank you so much your desire to be with us wasn't just manifested 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, but your desire to be with us is manifested right now as you're with us by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's the trajectory of heaven, it's the desire of God, it's your longing to be with people created in your image. God, my prayer today, God, is that we wouldn't neglect the gift of Christmas, that we would appreciate and embrace fully the gift that God has made available to us. Take a moment just where you are to pray your own response to God who is with us. The birth of Jesus Christ, celebrate it, thank him for it. Take a moment, just pray your own response to God just where you are, in your own words. And while people are praying, I realize that maybe you're joining today, maybe you're not yet connected with him. You, you hear about him and you want that relationship that I'm describing to you that God wants the balls in your core. Do you want to say yes to him who said yes to you? Do you want to commit yourself to him who actually gave himself for you? If the answer is yes, then I want to lead you in a prayer. And very simply, I'll lead you one line at a time in a prayer. And I invite you to pray this prayer with me, not just words, but pray it from the bottom of your heart and throw your whole life behind this prayer. So let's pray one line at a time. Say, dear God, thank you for loving me. Jesus, thank you for dying in my place so that I can be forgiven and have eternal life. I believe you rose from the dead on the third day. And today I'm asking you to take first place in my heart and in my life. I declare, Jesus, that you should be Lord of my life from now on. Thank you for hearing my prayer. 
Thank you for accepting me. In Jesus' name, amen. I know God heard your prayer. And if you, if you prayed that prayer just there, God has heard you. Miracles happened in your soul. You're now a changed person. You're an eternal being. You're in relationship with God. Listen, if you prayed the prayer, we would love to pray with you in person as a church. We want to do it as a church. We're geared up to help people who've made that decision to grow in that faith. So listen, let us know you prayed it. On the platform, click the button. Let us know you prayed it. If you're on YouTube or Facebook, why not message us and just say, listen, I prayed that prayer and we will do everything we can to help you grow in this faith. It's so important. And God has heard you and accepts you. God bless. Let's worship.